You're listening to From Woke to Work, The Anti-Racist Journey. My name is Kamala Avila Salmon, and I gotta be real with you. A black square on your Instagram does not make you an anti-racist, but there is a path. Join me as I guide you from becoming aware of racial injustice to actually doing something about it. Whether you're an ally ready to take action or just a Black person looking for someone else to answer all those ally questions, you're in the right place. It's time to go from woke to work. Hey guys, welcome back to From Woke to Work, The Anti-Racist Journey. I'm your host, Kamala Avila Salmon. Look at us going all the way from awareness to sympathy to empathy to reflection and finally arriving at allyship. Thank you guys so, so much for being on this journey. And I want to thank you for tuning in and sharing this journey with others. Now, for many of you, the struggle was real because this season we actually talked about race in a really real way. I think one of the earliest lessons that we learn as kids in this society is that some things are just inappropriate to discuss in public. Money, politics, religion, and yes, race. And at least for some of us, not as much for people of color, some of us have not been talking about race our whole lives. Most people of color can remember talking about it as kids with their parents, most likely. I can't tell you how many white friends I have who tell me that their parents never talked to them about race or racism, so they just didn't know where they fit in the conversation and felt like maybe it was someone else's problem to address. And it's really just a reflection of how seldom white people are really taught to think about race as a formative part of their identity. I think many white people become immediately uncomfortable if they have to talk about it because it means that they have to really think about their whiteness and what that status means in a society that privileges whiteness. So having to do that is very difficult, but here we are, we're doing it, you're all doing it, we're doing it together. And to my knowledge, no one has died from the discomfort that this conversation brings. Discomfort, or better yet, getting comfortable with discomfort, is a critical part in the journey towards a more effective allyship and anti-racism. So let's get into it. Let me just start by saying a few things. You're not an ally because you think you are one. You are also not an ally just because you would really like to be. You are not an ally because you have black friends, even multiple. You're not an ally because you think that the cops that killed Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and Jacob Blake and so many others should be locked up and stripped of their badges immediately. That is because ally is a verb. It is a set of consistent actions to interrupt and disrupt the status quo of systemic racism and anti-Blackness when you see it. It is about doing things. It is not about feeling things or thinking things or reading things. It is action and not words. Now, I felt like I needed to call that out right at the top because I've noticed that there is this tendency for the word ally to just be thrown around until it has almost no meaning. I shared with you a few episodes ago that the first version of this journey that I put together didn't even have allyship in as a step. Not because allyship is useless, but because it's incomplete. It is often expressed not in terms of action and more in terms of feelings. And this podcast is all about action. But the truth is that allyship when done right is actually very powerful and really is critical to moving us forward on social justice movements. 
there simply are places where a non-Black person can have a different kind of impact that would be much harder for a Black person to have in that conversation. You know who is often in all white rooms and able to hear the veiled racist comments that sometimes surface there? You know who the most effective person to push the HR team to put real resources against diverse recruiting efforts might be? You know whose voices might actually be heard if they go beyond posting about Black Lives Matter and actually talk to the leaders of their church and their child's school and their neighborhood about what the plan is for a more diverse community? Hint, it is usually not me. So yes, it is very important for non-Black people to find concrete ways to speak up for and take actions on issues related to racial justice. So to have this conversation about the importance of real, true allyship, I have a powerhouse panel of guests that I'm so excited to introduce to you guys. Terry J. Vaughn is an actress, director, and producer with over 20 years of experience in the entertainment industry. Now you may remember her from her lovable and memorable character, LaVita Alizé Jenkins on The Steve Harvey Show. She is also the co-owner of the Atlanta-based film and TV production company, Nina Holiday Entertainment, and has produced and or directed several projects for Viacom, TV One, BET, Asylum, and Mar Vista, to name a few. She's been honored with three NAACP Image Awards and is the founder of the Take Wings Foundation, which mentors young women in at-risk communities in the Bay Area. Our second guest is Dougie Cash. Dougie is a producer and development exec at Overbrook Entertainment, the film and TV production company run by Will Smith, Jada Pinkett Smith, and James Lasseter. Hailing from the Bronx, New York, like me, his creative journey began in the unscripted space for MTV, working on tentpole shows like 16 and Pregnant, Teen Mom, and The Real World. He also produced To All the Boys I've Loved Before, which became an instant worldwide hit and the most rewatched film on Netflix, and is also a producer on Cobra Kai, the popular spinoff to the iconic Karate Kid franchise. And finally, Michael Hoffman. Michael is a New York-based marketing professional who specializes in the cross-section of entertainment and digital communities. For the last 10 years, he's worked at places like Facebook, HBO, Bravo, and NBC Universal. He, more than most, understands the immense power of a real housewife's gift, the simple words, winter is coming, and a seat at the red table. Doug, Michael, and Terry, thank you so much for being here. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank, thank you, you so you. much for having Thanks us. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. I brought you here for a real easy one. So I'd love to hear from each of you. What is your definition of an now, you can talk about it from whatever vantage point you want, either as someone who has received allyship or for someone who has shown up as an ally. Let's start with you, Terry. What is an ally? Ally is someone who, first of all, has your best interests in mind. Ally is someone who will speak up and go to bat for you when opportunities present themselves that fit you. And an ally is really someone that puts their caring into action. I love that. I love that. Dougie, what's an ally? I feel like what Terry just did, and by the way, it's an honor to be on with you. I'm a huge fan uh, of your work. Oh, wow. Thanks. But I think you pretty much named them all. I would just sort of add that an ally is someone who, you know, is basically risking their livelihoods and their reputations and putting that on the line to go to bat for you in whichever capacity. 
but uh, I feel like you did it perfect. So I have nothing to say. <laughs> that was perfect. Yay, that was my goal. All right. <laughs> I love it. That's what we're going for, huh? I think, yeah, agreed. Like, said it well, Terry. My definition of allyship is someone who empowers themselves to seek the tools themselves to educate them on a marginalized community. For example, I'm a gay man and my mother calls me all the time to ask me and ask me about, you know, words she heard within about the LGBTQ community and wants to find better ways to understand what it means. Those words, terms, everything. Also the context in which it was used in is something that 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 I that I get from her. And on top of that, and on top of asking questions, she also, I also find her reading books and articles and sharing them with others. And it adds this halo effect on her community. So I think her allyship is derived from what you said, Terry, which is the love and empathy from and towards me. And I think allyship in general usually stems from that desire to understand someone else's experiences in order to love and care for them or be closer to them. So it's important to recognize what you may or may not know about a community or a specific group or person, and then seek the information to be grounded in how that community has been othered. And, and that to me is what allyship is, is it, it all derives from empathy and love. Yeah, totally agree. And I mean, I think that like, and I love what Terry said about, you know, taking that love and empathy and turning it into action, because, you know, that that's really what matters here. That's what's going to help us, you know, push forward. So throughout the season, you know, I've always used the words self-proclaimed ally or aspiring ally when I talk about this, because I think that it's sometimes it becomes a label that people use without having fully earned it. And I want to immediately put the thought in your head that perhaps you haven't arrived at the destination that you feel you have. You know, really, I think the truth of the matter is that if you are actually an effective ally, you actually don't need to announce that. You don't need to label yourself. Your actions will do that for you. So, Michael, you already kind of started talking about it a little, little bit, but I want to turn to you because, so one, this is a, an audio show, which means that people can't see you. So Michael is a white man, and he also is part of the LGBTQIA community. So you sit at an interesting intersection of identity in our society. So can you talk about how your identity as a member of a still marginalized community, the LGBTQIA community, but also as a white man, which is, you know, often in our community an elevated identity, how has that intersection impacted how you think about how to show up as an ally? Totally. And, and I'm very cognizant of the fact that even, you know, the, the, and, and acknowledge that I am a white cisgender gay man and I sit at one end of this spectrum within even my own community that is marginalized. So, so thanks for acknowledging that. I will as well. I'm also cognizant of the fact that I, you know, while I've had my own struggles growing up as a gay man and as a grown adult, overall, I feel loved. I feel supported by my family. I felt supported by work, by my community. And I, I know that a lot of the comfort and security has to do with my proximity to that whiteness and to that maleness and how those two are together. So I'm conscious of the fact that I'm invited to spaces and rooms that many people have harder time accessing and, and have a harder time being in. And also 
I have had experiences that have allowed me to progress in my career and social life at a different or ex- even accelerated pace because of that privilege. So that's just the truth. And that's definitely part of my my story. So I have to accept it. However, sitting in that place of privilege within my own marginalized community helps make me super aware of the importance of making time and space to support those around me who don't have those experiences. So part of being a gay man is being the other. So I know what it feels like on a small scale. And I know what it feels like to, to need to constantly educate others about my LGBTQ community, whether it be AIDS, which isn't really taught in schools, or language or terms that aren't, like I mentioned before, widely widely used. All of this, the sense of being the other has taught me to be a better ally for other still marginalized communities. So in my personal life, like to get to the meat of the question, my personal life, I always try to utilize my network for those that might not have access to the, to, to the same spaces. In my job, I try to, you know, recognize the voices in the room, as you mentioned, Kamala, recognize those voices and make sure the makeup is diverse and it's not, you know, and, and make changes quickly before things have progressed too far along. And also I've learned to, the importance of following subject matter experts in specific communities so that, because I just acknowledge that I know less and I want to keep learning and keep these, these conversations top of mind every single day. That said, I think one of the things, like on the flip side, one of the things that I've learned this year particularly is how white people can get involved in Black initiatives and initiatives serving Black queer communities by getting involved, it doesn't necessarily mean being an expert or being a leader. Sometimes, especially this year, like I mentioned, it's become more apparent the importance of just being there as a single protester and being in the meeting as a single person. And I and I believe this is a time where, yes, I can help and enable progress and support people that are different, that have different experiences than me. But I've started to recognize now that the thing I can do as a white person sometimes is just to show up. So that's what I ask for from allies in the queer community. So I'm kind of using that in this context as well. Yeah, I love that. And thank you for being, you know, really honest and sharing, you know, a lot of your personal story and your journey. I think too often these kinds of conversations get reduced down to their simplest forms and you really lose the nuance that, you know, it's not just black and white. There are so many intersections in in this work to be aware of. And I think that it does impact how different groups can show up. Specifically, you know, in this podcast, we talk about showing up for the Black community. And I think that, you know, for many people who belong to also marginalized groups, sometimes it can be an entry point. And other times it can be a barrier because it can be, you know, it can create this feeling of like, you're not marginalized. I mean, me too. Also me, same amount. And, you know, like that's not always going to further the conversation. So I really appreciate that you shared that. I mean, I think the truth is that all of us occupy many identities at once, right? 
We're neither fully privileged nor fully marginalized. We're, we're always somewhere in between. And so, you know, as a black woman who is also an immigrant and was an undocumented immigrant for a lot of my life, but also is well-educated, went to schools that people care a lot about and have been fortunate enough to have a successful career, I know very well that I sit in many spaces at once. And there's some rooms where I have some privilege and there's other rooms where I have less privilege. And, you know, it can really fluctuate literally meeting to meeting. And I think for people who aspire to be allies, to really sharpen their sensors for those differences and to look at rooms and think about where are the spaces where I need to show up as an ally in a local way and where are the spaces that I need to just show up, I think is a really, really great point. It's ruthless awareness. And that's something that I've learned a lot this year, just being ruthlessly aware of, of the spaces you're in and the people speaking. And, 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 and that's, I think, allyship is, 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 is ruthless and active awareness. Yeah, totally. So Terry and Dougie, I definitely want to bring you in. So I think 2020 was a really trying year for everyone. But I think it was a unique kind of hell for Black people because we had to endure not only the quarantine and the pandemic that disproportionately affected people who look like us and many people in the Black community are you know, less than one or two degrees away from someone who has passed away due to COVID. But we also had to witness such intense anti-Blackness in the form of what happened to Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. And also we had to endure just a barrage of new self-identified allies. So I would love to talk about how you experienced all of that this summer and really what that journey looked like for you. Terry, do you want to start? Yeah. So thinking back on 2020, especially at the be- towards the beginning of the pandemic, I was an emotional wreck. I'm just going to be honest. I was so emotional. I would cry every day. It just felt so heavy. Everything felt so heavy. And it felt like, you know, as much as I, as much as I wanted, you know, love to be the healing thing, I wanted us to find a way to connect and see each other. I just, I really just thinking about my boys. I have two sons. It was emotional for me. And I mean, it makes me emotional just, you know, thinking about it. And I I was angry. I was angry. I was emotional. I was scared for my kids to go outside. It was a lot. And then, you know, feeling all that, it made me think about just us as a race and how much trauma we've all been carrying. We all carry it. And for me to feel uncomfortable for my kids to go outside my house. And I live in a nice neighborhood, but I didn't, I mean, I was literally, if you're walking up the street to your friend's house, you need to be on the phone with me while you're walking. I need, you know, those kind of conversations are just, I hate that I have to do it, but I have to. And it's, it's, it's a lot. And then in the midst of it, you know, still just being the creatives that we are, thinking about what I can do. How can I serve? I can't stop using my voice in my creative space in the way that I create because it's too much writing on it. I can't stop developing shows. I can't stop telling stories. I can't stop it, no matter if nobody's helping me or not. 
I still can't stop because it's too important. And, you know, 2020 just made me feel, it it made me feel so many things. It made me feel all those emotional things, but it also made me feel like how brilliant we are, how brilliant, tenacious, powerful that we are as a race of people. And I just kept thinking like, if white people really, if they really just stopped and looked at who we are, how we roll, if they listen and really see, they would realize that the unity of of us all is such an amazing thing. Like, I, I just feel like the world would change. Like, Things for for white people would be better. Things, of course, for black people would be better. And I just wish we can we could, I don't know, find a way to really see that because I really believe that's the truth. And I really believe that's the key to getting past this really black cloud that the United States of America carries. The only way to get through that is, is we have to see past past it and see the humanity inside everybody and the brilliance and power and love and light. And I know it kind of sounds all fairy tale and what, but I'm not meaning it like that. I'm just, I'm really meaning it in a, in a powerful spiritual way. It would shift, it would shift the vibe in this country, it would shift everything. And I just, I just think that everybody would excel so much more if we could get past it. And it's just so sad that there, that, that our country and our world is just filled with enough people to keep the dark cloud hanging. Hanging over all of us. Yeah. I I think that's such a good point, Terry. One, thank you for just being raw and vulnerable because I think a lot of times we talk about these topics. Man, I can't believe you made me cry on the podcast. What's happening? You know, I'm working faster than usual. (laughs) Only one question in and I got you. I mean, I think, you know, a lot of times we do talk about these things in a very clinical way and, you know, because we're trying to be action oriented and solutions and like, but we have to really remember there are people. Yeah, my... My, I mean, you could just see it in, I'm going to just call it out because we're all here. Like you yeah. could see it in my response to allyship and Terry's response to this question, the difference in our experiences and emotion versus the clinical way that I'm perceiving it. It's, it's, it's true. It's true. It's just, it's, it's like clear in, in, in the way we're speaking. And thank you so much for, for putting, for putting that all out there. And it is emotional and it's a lot. Because it's our real lives. You know, it's funny that you talked about like, you know, the conversations that you have to have with your son. I have a three-year-old son and I talk about race all the time, whether it's on this podcast, at work, all the places. And the other day, like I thought about, I pictured like trying to have that first conversation with him about like, how do I explain to him my anxieties around the things that could happen to him? And I was like, at a loss. I was like speechless and I got like choked up because I was like, I don't even know what the first sentence that I would say is, right? I'm like, I have to practice really for that conversation, despite the fact that I understand at a very deep level, I communicate at a very high level about it. But when you have to look your child in the face and say, 
I have to explain to you that you might not be as safe as you feel like you are. And I know that I'm taking something away from you when I do that because I don't want you to have to know that, but I need you to know that. It's just, it's really tough. And I think that, you know, what you said is something that I want people to also, I wish people could internalize because a lot of times we think about like addressing racial justice as something that will benefit black people or will benefit people of color. And you do it for the service of like liking black people. And it's like, it actually will be better for all of us. It actually is going to be a much better world for everybody. So you're not just an ally on behalf of something that has nothing to do with you. I think like, you know, when white people start to get invested in dismantling the system, and I think that to me is really the mental shift from allyship to anti-racism, is like when it stops becoming sort of what you can do on behalf of someone else, but something that like we all need, and I'm just as upset about a white supremacist society as you are, then things can move forward. And, you know, Dougie, I'd love to hear for you, from you sort of what was this summer like and sort of what were some of the realizations for you? I mean, you know me, so I'm going to be quite honest and, and just frank. It wasn't a surprise. I think now that we live in the digital era and everything is 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 visual, it, it just makes it that much more real for the world. And I think it's harder for people who don't experience these things in their face. It's hard for them to deny it. So it, it was, you know, because I am a Black man, I know these things happen. But then when you look at certain certain isolated cases, it, 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 they're tragic to watch. Just, so Terry's pain is, is very real. My perception as I've gotten older has evolved a bit more in how I view it. And I know, you know, look, a lot of the way I think on this subject matter is not going to be popular. It will rub people the wrong way, right? I, I, I'm tired of us coming off and, and being victims. I think we're too, we're too powerful. So I'm going to lead with that. I think we give white people too much credit. You know, and 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 we we give them too much power, as if they're the saviors of us. Like, like no, in my in my opinion, I understand the country was who the country was founded for, <laughs> intended to to sort of be built around. You know, it's funny we have a, a documentary coming out on Netflix on the seventeenth of February, and it's sent and it centers around the Fourteenth Amendment and this idea of all men are created equal. And what does that actually mean? You know, but I think. For us as, as people of color, I think we have to figure out how to get on the same page. And I think if we can figure out how to unite and get on the same page, we don't need white people to do anything. We can we can make the change we want. And I think that there are so many systems and distractors in place that keep us conflict conflicted, right? Always beefing, whatever that thing is, whether it's music, whether it's fashion, whether it's marketing, whether it's whatever. There are things that keep us dysfunctional. Jay-Z said, this, you know, when a family feuds, it's always dysfunctional, right? So it's just, I think once we as people of color can figure out how to get on the same page and walk in, lock, and walk in lockstep, I think things will change. But we, we don't need white people or anyone to do anything for us. We have to be the change. Gandhi said it best. We have to get on the same page. But it is painful to watch. And, and, it, and it's hard to go through. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I, I totally hear you there. And one of the things that I, I like to do on the podcast is really just make it as concrete as possible and give people like a real roadmap to sort of 
what good looks like. So I want to turn back to you, Terry, and make it super concrete. So, you know, you and I met when we were on a panel with a bunch of executives in marketing and advertising, predominantly white, because those are the gatekeepers in almost every industry. And, you know, this panel was happening because they wanted to talk about how to invest in, you know, Black stories and Black storytellers. Obviously, this was a post-George Floyd panel, right? Because pre-George Floyd, this conversation was, you know, maybe happening sometimes, not really happening. And post-George Floyd, it was like every company wanted to do anything that they could immediately to be like, I'm on the right side of history. Look at me. I'm doing this thing, right? And and so I think that there were so many Black Lives Matter statements from everybody and their mother and even more panels and talks and commitments and, and, and you know, posts. And, you know, I want to hear from you as a Black filmmaker, right? Who is someone that I'm sure a lot of people reached out to and were like, so supportive of like, I want to hear from you or like inviting you to panels to talk about your perspective. And, you know, you've seen Hollywood on both sides of the camera as an actress and as a director. And so I just have to ask, has any real allyship emerged out of this moment of collective pearl clutching in the industry? Like, and, and if, if so, are there any examples of effective allyship <laughs> that you've seen or has it been mostly talk? Honestly, it's been talk. It's been talk. Yeah. I've been in this business a super long time and all of my allies, all of the people that you know, believe in me, that's given me opportunities, which I love. They're all black. I really was trying. I was like, oh yeah, I know I got somebody white on my list when I got your, the podcast. So I'm thinking, I'm thinking, I was like, no, I, I, I can't say that I have, because I can't include what agents and the look, because y'all making money off that, that doesn't count. I mean, somebody that literally stood up and was like, no, I want her. I want to give her this opportunity. I've seen her work. I know how much time she's put into this craft of hers. I want her. Everybody that's ever done that for me is Black. I have not. The only thing I was thinking like maybe close maybe is when Eric Thomasina from Swirl Films, they hired me to direct a movie of theirs. But I'm like, was that really Eric or was that really the network? making Eric. So, you know, I was like, yeah. I mean, that's real. (laughs) Like we need to talk about that because there were a lot of statements. Yes. We had that whole conversation with all of those advertisement agents and marketers and, you know, when they asked us the right question, they asked us to leave our, our information, our contact information. Phone wasn't ringing off the hook. Oh my God, they have done it. They, we are, I am getting calls. This is going to the next level, crickets. But the people that show up for me, they always show up for me. And so I so understand what Dougie is saying. And I'm such advocate of that too, that I know that I know that I know that I know that if there was more unity just in the black community itself, On a whole bigger level, I mean, we could change the world ourselves. We really could. I just, you know, people are just, and this is why it's not really a race thing, to be honest. It's like people not building together. And that's just what it is for, you know, whatever reason. We live in a a climate and an atmosphere where everybody wants to be number one, everybody wants to grow their own 
pyramid instead of let's build this pyramid together. It's just how it is. I think you hit the nail on the head because I think today, you know, it's different. Like, first of all, I think in our community, we don't have a lot of leaders. Like back in the day, you know, you had Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, and they were two different sides of the coin, right? And whichever side you identified, you sort of rolled with. But I think what, and this is, again, this is not going to be popular, but I think what that taught us is, you know, because you think like the, the world honors Martin Luther King, right? Because he was more, quote unquote, rational. Mar- well, Malcolm X was more extremist, if you were radical, right? But then you saw as he sort of started to evolve, you saw the way his way of thinking started to change. And sadly, he was taken away from us. I do believe that we have to figure out, one, who is that leader for us? And two, how do we sort of have the come? Because look, there are some of us who, who believe the fix is, is, is like, you know, kicking the door and do X, Y, and Z. Well, a lot of us are more diplomatic. And I think we have to figure out a sort of a unified solution on how we just get, you know, come together. Because I think if we can come together as a people, there's nothing or no institution, no person on planet Earth that can stop us. And I do believe that the powers that be know that. So we have to be smart and figure out how do we move different and together. And I think then everything changes. You know, look, we got we got we had a Barack Obama and, and, and Kamala Harris. Right. So we can do this. You know, we got Biden elected. You know, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm rambling. <laughs> no, it's true. Everything that you're saying is absolutely true. I think that the system that we live in, this system that we're in was created for us to be like this. It was created to keep us separate and apart. It was created that way. So we've all been bred in that soil and it's it's in us. So as much as we we can, because we're taking the moment to sit here and address it and really see each other, it's that that separation, that rivalry, it's it's in it's in us because we were bred in it. It was the system was set up for us to be that way. And we have to find a way, and maybe it'd be my kids' generation, I don't know, but we gotta find a way to break it somehow. And it will it will change the world when it when it does happen. It will change the world. I think there's a lot in what you said, because I think part of it is that the way that the system is structured is that, you know, by creating tensions mostly within communities and between communities, it prevents everyone from sort of you know, trying to figure out what is the source of our inequity? What is the source of our discomfort? What is the source of our lack of progress, right? And I think that, you know, there's a really famous Martin Luther King quote that when he talked about sort of, he pivoted his career to sort of poor people politics, right? When he would talk a lot about instead of giving the poor white man bread, they gave them the black man to hate. That is a tactic as well, right? Because it is about, don't worry about what's happening above you. Don't worry about the systems and the gatekeepers. Worry about this person. Like, don't worry about the fact that, you know, we're evolving to this type of economy and they won't provide schools so that you can train for those skills. Worry about the fact that there are illegal immigrants coming in and that's why you can't get a job. We're like, no, that's not why, right? It's distraction, it's tension and all of those things. But I do want to just circle back to what you said, Terry, because I think that this is really important. I think a lot of people do think that in the summer, when all of these people were having realizations and proclamations and declarations and commitments, that all of a sudden it meant like all of these new Black voices just like got on, 
right? All this new opportunity happened. All the allies took all the feelings and they did the thing, right? And the reason why we're having this conversation is that that's actually not what happened. Many people felt strong feelings and that's all they did, right? Maybe they convened a conversation so that they could hear more about the feelings and that's all that they did. And so I think for people listening to figure out, has your allyship been concrete and tangible in a way that a Black person would say, this person did this thing? Or was it more sort of a collection of, of feelings and ideas and, and thoughts you had in books that you read? Because it's not about, you know, to Dougie's point, it's not about depending on, waiting on, hoping that someone is going to jump into the fray to save. What it is, is that like what I'm looking for is for all of these very loud, you know, sort of social media proclamations to actually yield something, Right. Like it could lead to something. And so I'm curious, just Michael, sort of what you think, what you were thinking as Terry was sharing that. Were you surprised that things haven't materialized? Was that sort of what you expected? I'm, I'm curious. I don't know how our listeners feel, but I'm curious what you think. I think I was, I was surprised. I was surprised that, that Terry could not name one white person, especially given this year like has anything happened this year there's been enough time there's been more than enough time for for some fruit to bear so it's frustrating and sad to hear that and it makes me just want to do more you know so i think as you mentioned it's important for people to hear these stories so that it it enables them to do something so i, I yeah I, I i think that what happened last summer there was a lot of people were home and disillusioned and their lives were upended and they were just stuck to their phones. And, and like you said, Dougie, like there was this influx of visual media just pouring in. And I think it created a lot of virtual signaling behavior, just like a lot of that. And we need to get back to the, the real talk, which is what can be done for true allyship, which is, I think, you know, what we're, what we're here to talk about. Totally. Like it, it can't just be a state of mind. So I feel privileged to be able to share like some very concrete examples that I've seen just to give people a little bit of food for thought of sort of like, okay, well, what can I do? So, you know, this past summer, of course, like many black people, there are many non-black people who reached out to me, right? Checking on me, sending me private messages of support, but only a few of them really went beyond that to find concrete ways to do something, right? And it could be something small, right? It could be like sending me a meal or, you know, sending me something that you know that I want just to sort of like give me a chance for escape and sort of relaxation, right? You know, other people did it in terms of finding ways to support and amplify my writings, right? Not just sort of commenting or like liking it, but saying, I just shared it with the head of our diversity team. And like, I told them they should reach out to you and like try to book you. Or I just shared it with my, my friend who's a publisher. Do you want to get her advice on like, you know, turning this into something or even just advocating for me? In rooms, I feel like in every career that I've been in, every company I've worked at, I've always been this person that's speaking to you on the podcast. And so, as you might imagine, that person has often been labeled as too aggressive, too radical, a troublemaker, all of these things, right? Because of how much I always called out racism in the workplace. And so, I think that, you know, I know for a fact that there are non Black people who have advocated for me in rooms that I wasn't in and have said, no, we should hear her voice. 
what she's saying is true and I co-sign it. And by the way, her work product is excellent. So that has nothing to do with anything. And I think that's what we need more people to do. So, you know, before we kind of move on, just, you know, Dougie, I don't know if you have any examples that you want to share about, like, really seeing people step up. Otherwise, you know, we can sort of pivot. No, I think you can pivot. I literally think, uh, I think as Terry alluded to with the George Floyd, I think that 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 visual right there was sort of the catalyst where you saw probably the most diverse group of, of protesters. So I think we can pivot. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So, you know, Michael, I want to do something to you that happens to people of color many, many times, multiple times a day. As the resident white guy in the room, might you speak for your people? Just kidding. I want to go back to this summer of racial awakening and sort of what it was like. So, you know, as a Black person, just like Dougie said and Terry said, it was pretty stunning to me to see how many white people there were who had never really bothered to notice or talk about or comment on racial injustice suddenly showing up with all of this, at least social media activism and all of these things to say. And so I'd love to hear from you, you know, why do you feel like this moment landed differently with non-Black people and has it changed your approach to allyship and what are you doing differently now versus, you know, prior to last summer? Yeah, I think I mentioned it just just a few minutes ago about it being kind of this perfect storm of social media chaos and virtue signaling. Even white people at this time were stuck in their homes and began to experience some level of this disillusionment, albeit so small in comparison, but enough to shake them out of this like sense of complacency where they're looking for more information so everyone had this time and space. For me, how how that's that's how why I think you know it 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 happened. This moment kind of ballooned, and I'm generally more active about how I approach allyship as a lens across the things that I do. And like I mentioned before, with that level, with that high level of awareness, as as often as I can, whether interviewing people for a new role, conversations with my parents and my family members about this, and to be real, I, I looked around at all the people that I surround myself with socially, and I wasn't, to be honest, super thrilled with what I saw in the context of my said allyship. So like that, that's just something that, ha- that, that happened during this time. So building my network of friends my entire life was a completely passive experience. My network of not even just friends, my, ne- my, my network of people around me from, you know, I grew up in a white suburb, went to a white college in Wisconsin, moved to New York climbed the corporate ladder that was predominantly white. So this 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 summer changed my belief in that default. Really. What is it also like what I what I do differently now because of the summer is, you know, I I was questioning do I show up at this podcast? Like there is a I'm I'm kind of putting myself in a position of being the only white person in in the group. But I said yes, because, you know, if the conversation got uncomfortable, if I said something wrong, that's okay. And I think I, I think the, the, the me prior to this summer may not have done that and may have said, you know, gave up my spot for no other reason other than being, being scared of, of confronting it. So, so th- that's just a tangible, a tangible thing that, that changed. And I'm here right now, so. You're here, you're doing it. And it actually is a perfect segue to just, you know, the second point I want to touch on before we go into some FAQs is that what you just talked about is like what I think is a really important part of allyship, which is sacrifice, right? 
what you talked about is like, in this case, it was sort of sacrificing being the expert in the room, sacrificing a certain level of comfort and confidence that like, I'm going to know everything about what's happening and I'm going to be able to say all the right things and just, you know, showing up with vulnerability. And I think, you know, part of why the word ally has started to lose a lot of meaning for me is that oftentimes it does seem to be sacrifice-free allyship. It just seems like it's just too easy almost for some people. Like, you know, while it's it's a good start to like go to the Black Lives Matter protest, you know, as as we mentioned earlier, I think, you know, I have to say that going to it at the height of the greatest moment of racial awakening in a generation when literally everybody was going to it is not what I would call particularly bold or difficult to do. If anything, you might have stood out if you weren't going because for a moment, everybody was going. Right. So I don't want to diminish that completely, but I want people to really think about where are the spaces where what you're doing as an ally is hard? Where are the spaces where it actually is requiring you to give something up and to sacrifice? Because if those spaces don't exist, then I would challenge you that your allyship is incomplete. And so a really important pivot from that is in our show, we, we try to do FAQs. So frequent ally questions. So today we're going to do two of them since we are on the allyship episode. And this one is connected to what I was just saying. So I think one of the terms that people heard this past year was performative allyship. And I think it was new to a lot of people because they felt like, okay, I learned about racism. Apparently it's really real. And so now I'm going to do this. And maybe they got called performative and they were like, but wait, my intentions are good. Like I'm trying to do the right thing. What what is that? Why why is everybody mad at me? So I, I would love for and maybe Terry, you could start. Can you help people understand what is performative allyship and and are there ways for them to sort of reflect and figure out if they're guilty of performative allyship? Well, kind of to piggyback off of what Michael was saying, because I I feel like any person that really was a human being during 2020 had to feel some kind of emotions, compassion about what was going on and and about all those videos that were going around. You had to feel something. And I think, you know, even though I said, I, I, I honestly cannot think of a white person being an ally for me, I don't think that it's necessarily because they're trying to do something against me. I just think that they just don't think about it. It's kind of like out of sight, out of mind. That's not my world. That's not my, in my thoughts. I, I don't even think about it. So I just keep going on and moving in my life. I have family. I have, you know, all the problems that people just have. So it has to be in order to be an ally, like we're talking about, is like you have to really do the work, kind of like Michael's mom. You got to want to put the effort out. Like you, you needed to be affected so badly that you could not stand to get more information about what it means to be a black person in this country. And no, you're never going to understand it as we do. But the fact that you literally are putting forth an effort, let me pick up this book. Let me listen to this podcast. Let me call my writer friends that are black, let me see if there's something I could do. They got to do something. 
And I know it's not because I'm in my world. I'm not sitting around here thinking about white people. I'm not thinking about, you know, I got my kids. I got my husband. I'm not thinking about anybody outside of this house on a normal basis. So, and when I do think about something, it's like I put forth the effort. When I wanted to go into directing, I put forth an effort to let me learn this craft. Yeah, I know this. Let me put forth an effort so I can get comfortable in this craft. And it's the same thing. We got to find a a way people have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. So thank you, Michael, for even saying that and for being here, because I think that's where most people stop. And it's not because they don't care or they're not having thought about it. It's because why put myself in an uncomfortable situation? I'm not doing anything wrong to anybody. You know what I mean? It's like, so you have to be able to make the decision. I'm doing this because it matters to me. I'm doing it because this is what I want to do now. I want to get comfortable with getting this information so I can show up and be an ally and make a difference and really make an impact. And again, in the world, not just in the life of a Black person. Yes, I love that so much because I think for me, you know, where the performative aspect comes in is is simply in that it is just for show. It is just to be seen as a certain thing, but I'm not going to change anything happening like in my actual life, right? I'm not going to speak up for different people in the meeting. I'm not going to hire a different type of team. I'm not going to put myself in spaces to make different types of friendships. I'm not going to speak up in rooms where I think people might disagree with me. I'm not going to do any of those things that might make me feel comfortable. But yeah, I'll put up a black square just to show that like I'm a part of this moment as well. I too am woke. And I think like that is the difference. Like, are you willing to actually change up your life, your behaviors, your habits, your instincts, your practices, your media consumption, your news sources, your all of those things to actually get into a different space? Or are you just going to pantomime? you know, being a part of the movement. Right. Dougie, I don't know if there's anything you want to add. Otherwise, I have a different question for you. No, no, throw me the different question. (laughs) I love this though. Okay, awesome. So I was chatting with a colleague today about the need for vulnerability and the need for self-awareness when you're trying to show up as an ally. I think for a lot of people who are very new to the racial justice conversation and just came in this summer, sometimes their enthusiasm really got the best of them, right? They were just like coming in hot without like a lot behind it. And so, you know, one of the things that I think people might want to remember in this moment is we know where you're coming from and your heart is trying to be in the right place, but there's certain things that are just not as helpful, right? Like saying to someone, I know exactly how you feel because I am also marginalized in this other way. That's just a sentence that I think you can delete from your allyship vocabulary understand why you might have used it, not going to be helpful because as we sort of have talked about even at the beginning of the podcast, you know, when Terry talks about how these things hit her, it is different because she is a Black mother with Black children who have to encounter the world in a certain way, right? And I think another sort of related thing, another FAQ that I get a lot also comes from this enthusiasm and desire to help, but is a trickier one. So I've been asked a lot, how do I know when I should as a white person or just as a non-Black person, period, how should I know when I should advocate for and speak up for a Black person so that it's not always on their shoulders to do it, to talk about race, to make this problem said versus when I should yield the floor and make sure that I'm not 
taking up too much space. I'm not trying to be a white savior. So Dougie, I'm curious sort of how you would think about helping people negotiate that difference. Damn, that's a loaded, <laughs> that's a lot. I mean, I think it, it has to start from within. So I think taking the time, first of all, to educate yourself. And by educating yourself, I don't necessarily mean reading the history of the Black person in this country. I mean, actually sitting and talking to someone, perhaps that you don't have anything in common with and really opening your mind. Don't take some of the things that's being said personal as if you're being attacked, but try to hear it for the context in which it's being spoken. Because there's a lot of pain behind the treatment, you know, and, and it's not a good feeling. And I understand as someone who is white, you may feel attacked. You may be like, well, I'm not doing this. And, you know, so it's hard. And, you know, you go through your own struggles, but but it is different. And I think taking the time to really understand and then in your own life, once you have the knowledge, you understand calling things out as you see them. And you don't have to be a Karen with it. Right. But but really just like when you see wrongs being done in front of you, calling it out and then educate your friends and your circles and have those conversations. Because I honestly do believe that's where the disconnect is. It's just we're not able to have civil conversations like we're having right now and understand that it's okay to disagree. (laughs) Yeah, it's like we have this thing. We want to force our perspective on people. And the minute they don't agree, now that's where the, the bickering happens. But we don't have to agree. As long as we know racism is wrong, unfair treatment of someone because of the color of their skin is wrong, we have a lot to work with as long as we can identify those two things. Yeah. Hopefully that answers your question. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, totally. Michael, I'd love to bring you in sort of like, how do you think about the moments where you as an ally, you know, choose to jump in versus moments where you sort of more sort of step back? Yeah, I mean, you you said it well. There was this feeling during the summer where I wanted to do as much as I could. But then in the back of my head, I went, am I coming in too hot? And I think the slow burn of finding the right ways to support authentically was my way in and and having conversations particularly with my colleagues Kamala you were my colleague then and just having those conversations as it relates to the experiences that we're having together not outside experiences not experiences that you can't really see in front of you so i was able to speak to you Kamala about what was happening in the room and and around us and not necessarily what was happening in the world. And that was my way to show up authentically as an ally. And I think that that was, that was key for me to make sure that I wasn't virtue signaling. I wasn't coming in hot just without anything to speak for it from my past. Yeah, totally. It's, it's kind of interesting because this past weekend I did you know, a talk with, I'm part of a mom's group, like a neighborhood mom's group. And they, it's a pretty diverse group, but it is predominantly white. And they asked me if I would come and talk about my podcast. And so, you know, we, we were doing, we were doing it and they're asking a bunch of questions about allyship and how to show up better. And, you know, there was a white man that had joined the call and just sort of jumped in like, wait a minute, you're saying that white people need to do all these things. And like, you're not saying black people need to, and it was just a barrage. And I could see the look of horror on the faces of all of the other moms, like on this zoom call, especially like all of the white moms being like, oh my God, it's happening right now. What do I do? (laughs) How do I show up? And, you know, they asked me sort of like, what do I do? And for me, I'm not a person who generally needs people to speak up for me. I'm a very outspoken person. So like 
before they could even figure out like what to do, I'd already handled him and like he moved on. Yo, you're the best. I'm sorry. I just got to tell you that. I'm so sorry. Yes, I love her. I love her. I can just imagine how she let him have it in the most politest, beautiful, well-spoken way ever. I can just imagine. It was beautiful. Of course he did. You know, I had to do, I, I I basically told him, it sounds like there's a talk that you'd like to give, but this is not it. So you should definitely convene it. And we're not going to center the rest of the conversation on your experience. And then we moved on. Yes. <laughs> wow. Yes. But, you know, like, I think that the reason why I shared that is that there could have been someone else who was the speaker that had been invited. And maybe it's not their personality to just immediately like feel like, you know, I can say the thing. Right. I think that as an ally, you need to read the room and negotiate the space. Right. If I had seemed flustered and like thrown off and like then you as the leader say something. But, you know, if when you are in the presence of someone who can hold their own, then like you can fall back. And if I need your support, I'll let you know. So I just think like it really does have to do with what Michael mentioned at the beginning, which is ruthless and active awareness not expecting in every situation a Black person needs you to speak up for them. Not expecting in every situation you can be quiet. It's dynamic, right? It's different. You have to negotiate the space. So with that, I just want to thank you all for being so honest and authentic with me and our audience today. I feel like we had a really amazing conversation that people can dig into from so many different directions, no matter who you are, and find something in it that you can take and use. Getting to a different place on racial justice really is going to require that we have different conversations and set different intentions and be able to have, to Dougie's point, conversations like this, where we can all be heard. We don't all have to be a monolithic sort of group of agreement. We actually can test out different theories. What about this? What about that? Have you tried this? Have you considered that? I think we'll have to make ourselves uncomfortable on purpose to make sure that we're never complicit in the system. And for those who aspire to be allies, I encourage you to lean into the places in this conversation where you felt uncomfortable and in this conversation where you felt challenged and think about why, because that's a really great signal that that's a place where you need to grow, not a place that you need to run away from. All right, before we go, please let the people know where they can follow you and your work. Terry, can you start? Yes, I'm on all the social platforms under Terry, T-E-R-R-I-J, Vaughn, V-A-U-G-H-N. Amazing. Dougie, how can the people follow you and your work? I have the most basic but cool name. You can just follow me on Instagram at Dougie Cash. <laughs> And also on Facebook, I host a podcast called We Might Need Counseling. It's exclusively there, facebook.com backslash WMNC podcast. And I heard you had a cool guest the other day, just just saying. I mean, I may have had the host of From Wolf to Work. I mean, I may have. (laughs) No, you were fantastic. I'm excited for that one to come out. She's a powerhouse. I hope you know that. Now, I I just got her name right, too. So (laughs) listen. We've been working through that stage in our relationship where yeah. I, I was competing with the VP for a while, but I think I finally come into my own. You, you did, but you are powerful. I love it. Michael, where can the people follow you and your work? You can follow me at M Hoffman with a zero M H zero F F M A N. It's just a lot of dancing videos of me and maybe a little bit of work stuff. So enjoy. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> 
So next time we're going to dive into the limits of allyship. We already surfaced a few, but they are many. And so until then, I encourage you all to, as always, think about where you are in the journey. You may not be quite up to where we are right now, but the goal is to commit to taking one more step in the direction of going deeper into the funnel and moving towards a more effective form of allyship and anti-racism. I'm your host, Kamala Avila-Salmon, and this has been From Woke to Work. We'll see you soon. Thanks for joining us and for making it this far. As always, I'm Kamala Avila-Salmon, and you can follow me on social media at TheRealKS1. Subscribe now wherever you listen to podcasts, and don't forget to rate us to help more people find the show. From Woke to Work was produced by me, Kamala Avila-Salmon, in partnership with Julian Lewis and TJ Bonaventura at Studio Pod. Edits were made by Noda Lab. Our amazing artwork was designed by Tommy Gomez. And this fire track I'm speaking on was produced by Dave Contrap. Until next time.